We have a couple of things, a homework assignment, homework number five due this Friday, and a quiz coming up the following, the following week, which will cover chapters 11 and 12, which will be uh, finishing up this week and, and next. Then exam three is scheduled for the 4th of November, and we'll cover chapters 10, 11, and 12. And a couple new things on there, the solar observations, your third and the last set that you're turning into me. Again, at least one more observation, but hopefully you've got more than just three observations by now because you need about ten by the end, of, towards the end of November when the project is due. A couple of weeks after this, one of our lab sessions will be going through the calculations and the graphs. So there'll be a, don't, don't worry about that if you're not comfortable with them. Um, I will do a complete lab session where I will have you, I will go through example calculations and we'll do the graphing as part of a lab which I will then grade as part of a lab as well. So you won't have to worry about that, that will all be taken care of, but this is just at least one more observation and the last time that I'll take a look at them during the semester. And then the third iTunes quiz will be the following week, middle of November. Goodness, we're getting close to Thanksgiving there already uh, for dates of things that are due. And that'll cover the pictures from October 5th through November 8th. And then there will be one more towards final exam week, which will cover the last, the last month's worth of pictures, essentially. So, questions? We're all ready to go. It's Monday, yay. Oh, boo, I don't know. All right, well, picture of the day for Monday is Saturn, actually. Um, we guessed that, would you guess that one? Jumps out at you, we know that's Saturn, good. Um, except it's a view of Saturn we can never ever get from the Earth. So we could never ever see Saturn like this from the Earth because of where we're positioned, close to the Sun. The, all we can ever see of Saturn is its illuminated face. So all we ever see is this portion of Saturn, the part that's being illuminated by the Sun at the moment. We can never see the dark side of Saturn. In order to see that portion, the part, the half that's not being illuminated, right? half of every object is illuminated and half is not. In order to see that, we've actually got to travel out to Saturn or beyond in order to see that. So in order to see this shadow here, the shadow being cast on the rings, we have to have actually flown out to Saturn. And this was taken earlier this month by the Cassini spacecraft, which is in orbit around Saturn. So only way we can ever kind of get an image like this uh, we can get some pretty nice images from Earth, from Hubble, some, some of the nice telescopes that we have. But to really see anything, and even using a powerful telescope at the Earth, it's not quite the same as being, so, as being with only tens or tens of thousands of kilometers or 100,000 kilometers away from the planet. So you can actually see a lot more detail when we actually fly out there. You can see the rings detail, very faint rings in here very close. Couple of the bright rings that we see from Earth and the divisions in, be in between them. So it's really kind of a view that you just can't get from, from the Earth. And I don't know if you can see, let me go ahead and turn this off, see if you can actually see the, can you see the hexagon up there? One of the interesting shapes in astronomy that astronomers are still puzzling over this bluish area is actually got a six-sided hexagon figure in the atmosphere of of Saturn. And astronomers are still at kind of a loss to explain it. Typically things are circular. You know, circles are relatively easy to explain. If you see a, a planet in the shape of a triangle or a pyramid, then we'd really be scratching our heads trying to, how did this form in that kind of shape? So finding something shaped as a hexagon is, you know, very interesting 
but not something that we can very easily explain right now. So what is going on there? I really can't even, can't even tell you. You know, why is it in the shape of a hexagon? It's something that astronomers are still puzzling over. If it was just circles, it would be, well, it's done and gone. We don't have to worry about it. But having that unusual shape, when you see things like circle, when you see things like triangles or squares out in space, you start to wonder really what is, what is going on there. I'm sorry? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they'd be looking at it as well. I'm sure all sorts of scientists will be looking, trying to explain, you know, why we get this kind of pattern. You know, if you look at a hurricane on Earth, it's, it's always, you know, circular shape. You don't get one that's, you know, got distinct sides to it. So why is this pattern here? And do we see it any place else? And right now, not, not except for Saturn. Problem is, the only planets like this we can study up close are Jupiter and Saturn that we have. The only one we can currently study up close is Saturn. There's nothing around Jupiter right now orbiting, and we've only flown by Uranus and Neptune. We've never actually had anything in orbit around them. So to look at them in any great detail, you really need to be out there. But it is something that not, not just astronomers, but other scientists are studying as well, trying to see if we can explain why something would come up with this kind of shape. Anything else? Not really, not, no big large storms like we had on Jupiter and the one on Neptune. No big large storms present on, on Saturn. I mean, certainly turbulent clouds as we had on Jupiter just buried more deep down under the, under the hazy layers. No, no, no. Alrighty, well, we'll go ahead and get, get started then. Um, if you do go on D2L, you should note a whole bunch of lab grades popped up all of a sudden. I put a whole bunch of lab grades in for you, and I've about more than halfway through the homework now, so that'll be up shortly, and then I will start on your articles. So you should have a big packet of stuff back uh, Wednesday or Friday of this week. I'll probably just wait until I get, every, to get the articles done, too, and give you everything back by Friday. So just to let you know, if you want to see grades, they're, starting to, they're, they're popping up there, and all the labs have been, have been updated now. Let's see. All right. So we were looking at star forming regions and nebulae last time. And this is where we finished up. We were looking at, this is actually the Trifid Nebula. And show nice because it shows all of the types of nebulae there at once. You have an emission nebula in the red that is glowing due to hydrogen. Hydrogen gas being excited gives off that bright red line of hydrogen. So we see that. We see a reflection nebula in blue. That is simply the light of the star being reflected. Now if we were to take a spectrum, like we did in lab here a couple of weeks ago, if we were to take a spectrum of this portion of the nebula, we would see several bright lines of hydrogen. Not a continuous spectrum, nothing else, just a lot of bright lines of hydrogen. If you, on the other hand, were to take a spectrum of this part, the reflection nebula, that gas, that gas is going to give you a continuous spectrum. Okay, that's dust. That's actually dust reflecting the, reflecting the light, the starlight. So all we're really seeing there is starlight. So if we take a spectrum, even though it looks like a diffuse nebula like the other one, it's only reflecting the starlight. We're going to get the same spectrum as the star. So this, 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 light, this nebulosity up here will give us exactly the same spectrum as that star that is giving us, giving us the light. The bright one towards the center, yeah. It's usually one bright star that is doing most of the work 
in these nebulae. There's usually one very, very bright star, very, very energetic star that causes most of the, most of the material to glow. So once that one goes, the nebula will then turn off, essentially, once it has no energy source. On the other side, we're looking at the identical nebula, same nebula pictured twice. Here we're seeing it in the infrared. So one thing you can see is that you can trace out these dark dust lanes that go through this lower, lower portion of the nebula. They're all right here. You can trace them out. There's one, there's one, and you can match them up pretty, pretty precisely. And that is now they're bright in the infrared. We're actually able to see in there. There's a lot of material there. And there are stars still in the process of forming in nebulae like this. You'll also note that there's some areas where there is light being emitted in the infrared, way up here, where you see absolutely nothing. That just means that there aren't any stars close enough here to excite that gas and dust and cause it to glow, either as an emission nebula or a reflection nebula. There's just not a bright star close enough for it to glow visibly needs a little bit more energy to emit visible light than it does to be able to emit infrared light. So that's kind of where we were finishing up last time. We looked at the dark nebulae, the emission nebulae, and the reflection nebulae. Thank you. So it's kind of summarizing what I mentioned on the others. Uh, the emission nebulae tend to glow red. And that is that, hydrogen, that bright red hydrogen line that we looked at and sketched in class a few weeks ago. The dust lanes that we saw in that image, I'm going to go back so you can see them. The dust lanes here are actually part of the nebula. So they're actually, that is dust within that nebula. You could get dust further out. You could get dust clouds further away that would cause, this, would cause a similar effect that would blot out parts of it. These ones are actually a part of that nebula. So it's actual regions where the stars are currently forming within that nebula and will if we could come back in hundred, a couple hundred thousand years, they wouldn't be dark dust lanes anymore. They'd be illuminated. Some of the stars would have, would have gone, and now new stars will have formed in their, in their place. It's just that star formation takes so long that we can't watch it. We don't have enough time. We can sit there and watch it all our lives, and you could have watched it three generations before you and three generations after you, and nothing, nothing will change in terms of star. That, that nebula looked the same you know, 100 years ago, a couple hundred years ago, as it will a couple hundred years from now. On the off chance that a supernova goes off, okay, that's a possibility, but for the most part it's not going to change. Question, sir? I was going to say you can watch it get hotter, can't you? N not on our time scales. Not unless... Not even, a not even fractions or anything? Not really. Not to the accuracy with we, we can measure it. You're not really going to really be able to see it. The difference is, I did well, if a supernova were to go off, if one of those stars were to go supernova, then yes, that is w the one astronomical event that runs on time scales that humans can see. Like an actual, um, is an accretion disk? Is that mm -hmm. the dust that's swirling into a star? You can't watch that like, get no. any hotter at all? No. How long does it take? Like millions? millions to, for a star to form? Hundreds of thousands to millions of years. So the ones that are forming here are, they're in the previous slide, you know, have been forming for, you know, might have looked like that 10,000 years ago. Yeah, the, the bigger stars will actually form faster. Bigger stars with larger gravity will form very quickly. Um, smaller stars will take a longer time to form. So it's possible in some of these clusters 
that you could form some massive stars and they could go through their entire lives and be dead before the little stars even have a chance to form. The time difference is that much. So you might never get all of the stars forming together at once because of that, because of that time difference. All right, so here's a little schematic, artist's conception of how, ne how a nebula works. Here's what we see. So this is trying to do that Triffid Nebula that we looked at a little bit ago. There's some of the very hot stars forming. Hot ultraviolet radiation coming out from those stars. Again, these are stars not like our sun. These are stars that are the O stars that are 30, 40,000 degrees. So many times hotter than our own sun. They emit a lot of ultraviolet radiation. And that does enough to go ahead and ionize a lot of the gas around there. Ionize the hydrogen, strip the electron off, and you have electrons and you have protons floating around. They recombine together. When they recombine, that electron cascades down and goes down to its ground stable level. And as part of that, it'll emit one of those red photons. It'll emit a lot of infrared photons too. It'll also emit some ultraviolet photons. But as part of that, that red one, in terms of looking at it with a visible telescope, you're not going to see the ultraviolet. You're not going to see the infrared, anything else that forms. You are going to see that visible light photon. That's the primary one that does, that does form. So you will see that, and that'll give this, this reddish glow from right around where those stars form. Note that that's only a tiny part of the nebula. There's a lot more of the dark nebula way out here that is not illuminated. Those stars can't illuminate everything. They've only got so much energy. So there's a lot more material here, dusty material, that is waiting to form stars. These are just the first couple that form, probably towards the edge of the nebula, as something compressed it. And then they, their, their energy and their explosions, perhaps at the end of their lives, will then compress further material and continue that star forming going through until that dust cloud is completely used up. So first one is how you get the emission nebula. That's the emission of hydrogen excited by those hot stars. The reflection nebula, you need another dust cloud, probably, maybe relatively close, maybe a, probably relatively close to these. Again, that visible light comes out. It emits a lot of blue light. That comes out to the dust cloud. The dust cloud reflects primarily the blue light. Much better at reflecting blue light than it is at reflecting red. So the blue light gets reflected to us. Oh, thank you. Thanks. The blue light gets reflected to us like a little mirror. The blue light gets scattered into here, comes out and comes towards us. The red light tends to make it through. You recall last time we said when we look at stars through dust, they look fainter and they look redder. That's the same process here. The light that's going in is the entire light from the star, but primarily the blue light gets scattered towards us. Some of the red, some of everything gets scattered, but primarily the blue, and more of the red light will make it straight through. And then the dark, the dust lanes are usually clumps of material, so here's some of these dusty clumps that are within the nebula itself, blocking out light from behind it. So there's not as many objects you see behind that. You can't really see behind those. The closer they are to the front, the darker they'll look and the more material they will block out. So there in sort of a schematic you get to see all of the formation of all of the different types of nebulae. You can see the emission nebulae right around the hot stars. You can see the reflection nebulae a little bit further away. And those dark clumps that are still within that in the nebula are 
the dark nebulae. That's where the stars are forming. That's where all the interesting stuff is going on that we want to look at in this chapter. That's where the stars are forming at present. Okay, here we go. So what happens? And we're seeing a little bit more of here. You may have seen some of these Im images before. Uh, we're looking at here's A, and you're looking at this section zoomed in. You've got the fingers there sticking out. Um, what you have is a very is a dark nebula here, uh, and then a star is forming right towards the very tip of that. So the star formation would be going on, would be very close. That would be the densest area. Likely that's where a star is forming. The shape of these is caused by other stars that have already formed. You have other stars out here, for example, that are pushing out a lot of energy and a lot of radiation. And they're trying to clear out this nebula. They're clearing out the dust from which they formed. But as if you're on, on the beach watching the sand, you know, if you've got a rock in the sand, right? The rock kind of sits there and doesn't get eaten away by the water, but the sand around it gets dug and it gets sort of that pattern, you know, swept out behind it. The same kind of thing will happen in space. There's a denser area here, and while these big stars that have already formed are trying to clear out that nebula, that little dense area kind of stands up there and just, it just sticks in there. It doesn't want to go away. It's denser, it's not as easy to tear that apart as it is the, just the loose pieces of dust that were in between. At one point this would have been a great dust cloud all the way stretching out. That star has now eaten away at it and what we see are the remnants that are left. As stars form here and here, they will then start to eat away at the rest of this and this will slowly change. And that's what we're calling their photoevaporation. We're taking the material away by photons, by particles of light, are actually removing the dust, or actually pushing it back further into this, into this cloud. And you see some similar dust here as a star forms. You can see some of those pillars forming, again, several, several of them forming. The pillars are really just showing where the denser areas are in the cloud. So denser areas, if we wanted to look at these and look at these in more detail, not in the visible spectrum, but look at them in the infrared, we could then look in there and you'd see a, there'd be, see a star in the process of forming. Again, can't sit there and watch it. You get one snapshot of how, of how it's forming and that's it. Uh, let's see. Then we have, what do we see? And I've talked a little bit about this already. The emission nebulae that we look at, we actually get the spectral lines. Not going to be near as simple as the ones we looked at here in class, right? I gave you all the nice easy ones. I know you weren't thinking that when you drew neon, right? You're cursing me. Why are we drawing this stupid neon that's got all these lines to it? But it gets more complicated when you get out there because you have not only hydrogen, if you're looking at the hydrogen, and not only some neon lines and not only oxygen lines, but you have all sorts of different elements. So here looking at this nebula, you can find the hydrogen lines, you can find helium lines, you can find oxygen, you can find neon, you can probably find a bunch of other elements there. That tells us something about the compositions. When we say that, again, 90% of everything that you see out there is hydrogen. So in any of these nebulae, even though you're seeing things like neon, you're seeing things like oxygen, most of the particles that you're seeing in that are still hydrogen atoms. But we can learn about those trace components, all the important stuff to us, right? If our, if our solar system had formed out of just hydrogen and helium, would we be here? Right? We got a lot more stuff than hydrogen and helium making up our bodies. A lot of hydrogen in the water, but you've got you know, irons and you've got uh, 
carbon and you've got nitrogens and all the other elements that you know takes to make up the earth and then talk about the earth you know silicons and metals and all things there all those little traces are still very important so i keep emphasizing that everything's hydrogen but those little tiny traces actually mean something as well question or Yes. Yes. Almost. 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 Everything was hydrogen and everything was hydrogen and helium. Hydrogen and helium formed originally. But everything else, the carbon in your body, you know, the iron in your body, all formed in, and got out to the universe in a supernova explosion. So if you think about, it, you got first-hand experience of probably multiple supernovae. Can you remember them? Well, probably not, right? But. But you know, all the elements in your body came out within a supernova explosion. All right, except the hydrogen that's in the water. That may not have. Now, when we look at these dark clouds, they're extremely cold. So we looked at some temperatures in the solar system, and they got very cold when you got out to, to, uh, towards uh, Pluto. But the average temperatures in these clouds is sometimes a few degrees to 10 degrees Kelvin. Recall that Kelvin scale goes down to zero and stops. You cannot get lower than zero on the Kelvin scale. That means essentially that everything has stopped moving because temperature is a measure of motion. It's just measuring how fast the particles in you know, the water or the air are moving at the time. The slower they move, if you could stop them completely, you'd get down to zero Kelvin. Well, we're down to tens of, tens of Kelvin or even less at this point. Now, the temperature in here is what, about 300 Kelvin? So getting down a very, very cold. When we look at some of these clouds, there they are. So there's a cloud blocking out a lot of the light here and is invisible. So if we think about that again, again, for thousands, thousands of years, up until you know, less than, about 50 years ago or so, 50, 60 years ago, that was all we could know about this cloud. We had no way to look into that and see what's really going on there. Now we have other technologies. We have things like radio telescopes that will look in there. And if we look at the same part of the sky, this dark area, which looks pretty boring in the visible, there's nothing there, right? Or nothing that we can see at least, is actually very bright. Most of the material that we can see in this Im that is in this image is buried down in here where the very bright radio images. So there's a lot of material there, a lot of gas and dust. It's just at a very cold temperature. Very cold temperatures, not a lot of energy, can't emit visible light. You need a lot of energy. You know? Sun emits a lot of visible light at 6,000 degrees. When you get colder and colder, you get down to tens of degrees, you can only emit the very longest wavelength radiation, which is radio waves. So we cannot possibly see that in the visible there's not enough energy there. Not until a star forms. Once a star forms here and then starts to illuminate it, then we'll be able to see it. But until that happens, we can't see it. All it's going to be is a dark patch against the sky in the visible part of the spectrum. There probably wouldn't be a black hole there. Uh, just because you, you might notice some deflection of the light, but the black hole being so tiny, they'd have to be almost in a line. You'd have to almost have them perfectly lined up to really be able to see anything like that. 
but it also wouldn't, a black hole wouldn't blot it out like that. So a black hole wouldn't blot out all the light that you're seeing from the stars. Uh, right around it, yes it would, but we're talking probably on this scale, you're talking several you know, light years across, the black hole wouldn't block out that much, that much light. Okay. Alright, so here's a pretty one, a well-known one. This is the Horsehead Nebula. See the little horsey head? Everybody sees the little horsey head this time instead of some of those things where we got to turn our heads sideways or inside out to be able to make it out? You know, it's like the little knight piece in chess there at the head of the knight. That's a dark nebula in the constellation of Orion that has a very distinctive shape. I mean, it has that shape for now, but again, come back in 10 or 20,000 years and it won't look anything like that. Stars could be forming within some of these denser areas and that would eventually tear it apart. The light from these intense stars nearby it are slowly eating away at it. So again, come back in 10 years, it's going to look exactly the same. Come back in 20 years, it's still going to look the same. But if you could come back in thousands, tens of thousands of years, it'll look quite different and all the nebulae that we've looked at will change over that, time, that kind of time frame. So how do we look into these? We've seen a couple pictures of some of the nice nebulae there. How do we actually look and study them? Well, we study them using hydrogen, but not that red line of hydrogen. That requires a lot of energy to produce that red line of hydrogen. You need an ultraviolet photon to excite that hydrogen atom up high enough that it will give off that red photon. If you looked at all the little devices here, it all said high voltage on it. So putting a lot of energy into those little tubes, exciting the hydrogen. But there are other transitions that we can get. And this is a very low energy transition example. When you have a, a hydrogen atom, you have a proton, and you have an electron orbiting around it. There are, the electron and proton also have their own spin. So think of them as a little planet spinning on their axis. A little more complicated than that, but for, right, for, now, that, for now that's really all we need. Think of them as spinning on their little axis. Each of them are spinning. And as one orbits around the other, it spins. And there are two possible ways they can spin. They can either spin in the same direction, so here the proton is spinning around counterclockwise and the electron is spinning around counterclockwise as it orbits that proton. That requires a little bit more energy, tiny, tiny bit, but it requires a little bit more energy than if you go into the most stable state is where the proton is spinning in one direction, perhaps counterclockwise, and the electron is spinning clockwise. And the electron, unlike a planet, which can't just stop spinning clockwise and go, spinning, stop, go from spinning counterclockwise to spinning clockwise, right? Get the Earth all of a sudden spinning the other direction and now the sun rises in the west and sets in the east. Really, really confuse everybody? You know, you can't do that, but subatomic particles are able to do that. They can flip their spin. So they can go from spinning counterclockwise to spinning clockwise. That's a little bit less energy. It gives off a little tiny bit of energy. How much? Well, it's a radio photon, and it's about 21 centimeters in length, so about that long. So compared to little teeny tiny wavelengths of visible light that require a lot of energy, it doesn't take a lot of energy to excite the hydrogen atoms to give off that kind of photon. So you, what you might have is you have hydrogen atoms and clouds that are bumping into each other. Well, it doesn't take too much energy to flip that electron. Clouds bump into each other, and some of those um, hydrogen atoms will get flipped and you'll flip the spin of the electron, 
It doesn't want to be there. Again, everything always wants to go down to its ground or most stable state. So once you collide them and do that, it wants to go back down here. And it emits that photon. But it doesn't take a lot of energy. So it doesn't require any intense stars. It doesn't require any stars at all. It just requires the general motion of that cloud itself and just material bumping into each other. Because that's not a whole lot of energy to be emitted in a wavelength that, that long. So we're going from the spins are flipping from one direction, going the same direction, a little bit more energy, spinning in the opposite direction, a little bit less energy. And that gives off a photon of about 21 centimeters. And we can then use that to map the universe. We can now detect all the hydrogen in the universe. Doesn't have to be excited enough to be able to give off the red light that we see, the one that we've been used to. Only has to be excited a little tiny bit to give off the 21 centimeter. Well, even at tens of degrees, plenty of energy to be able to excite that. Even at those extremely cold temperatures, it's plenty of energy for these to glow very brightly at that wavelength. So not brightly when we look at them, right? To our eyes, we don't see anything. Unless you've got ra eyes that detect radio wavelengths. They have to be pretty darn big too. But you can't, so you can't see them directly like that. But through radio telescopes, we can. And we can detect that radiation. And here's an example of not, that, not specifically of the hydrogen, but of any molecule. This is actually looking at another one, which has hydrogen and carbon monoxide kind of mixed. And you can then map them out. So where is most of that material? There's two different ones here. There's one in red kind of fades into the background there, and there's one in the green. They peak in about the same spot. If you follow these up, there's about a peak somewhere in here. There's a peak somewhere in here. That's where all the material is. That's where most of the material is in that picture. Is that where you'd pick it if you were looking at it visually? If I just showed you the picture without those little lines on it, you wouldn't say that's where most of the material is, would you? You'd say, well, right here, right? Right in the middle of this nebula, probably, where the stars are, where the stars are. That's the whole thing. Those stars only can illuminate so far away. They can only, you know, flashlight only shines so far, and it starts to fade out. So you start to lose it there. But as you're looking out into this cloud, this cloud actually extends well off into this section. And in fact, most of the material is still way down in here. So more stars will likely be forming here. Again, come back in 100,000 years and see what the nebula looks like. This is where we really need some kind of time travel machine. Let's go forward 100,000 years and get a picture of this so we can show you, you know, what it would look like. What will this look like in 100,000 years? Well, it'll depend details on what kind of stars form, what kind of stars go supernova, where they're located, what the densities of this cloud are. But I can tell you for sure it won't look the same in 100,000 years as it does now. Next year it'll look the same. But 100,000 years from now it'll look quite different. And we see that there's a lot more material out there. Again, we wouldn't have known about this 100 years ago. All we could have gone by was you know, what we see, what we see with visible light. All right, let's see. Anything else on there I needed to? No. Looking at, to say, looking out, you look at things like, we look at a number of different molecules. Carbon dioxide is one we look at. Carbon monoxide, there's a lot of that out in the universe. Um, this H2CO is another one we see. Water, we see a lot of water uh, molecules out in the universe as well. Some of the very nice ones to be able to map out, out there. And they give off some very nice transitions in addition to the hydrogen one that I talked about last time. So here's some carbon monoxide. Here's a picture of our galaxy looking towards the outer part of our galaxy in carbon monoxide. 
Um, dark areas, there's less carbon monoxide. Dark, brighter areas, there's a lot of it. So you're starting to see some of the clouds where stars would be forming. Again, this would, nothing would be visible here. If you looked at this with you know, visible light, you wouldn't see anything in these. We're not to that stage where stars have begun to form and break out and you know, illuminate things as we saw in some of those earlier nebula pictures. All we see here is these clouds emitting very low amounts of energy in the radio part of the spectrum. So when we start looking at star formation, we have to start out in the radio part of the spectrum because it's all invisible to us otherwise. You can put the most powerful telescope there and point it at that for you know, days and weeks and you're not going to see anything. It's not emitting any visible light, but it's emitting a lot of radio radiation. It, it looks like a picture of the sun. Yeah, it does look like some of the pictures of the sun that we, the sun that we saw, doesn't it? Same color, same type, same type of coloring, and it would be a false color image because it's in the radio, so that's probably part of what it, what it is. All right, so now we got to form a star. Now we got to make a star. Lab for this week, make a star, right? Okay, star formation happens. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, do our own nuclear fusion reactor in class? Yeah, I'd love that. Um, we've got a dust cloud. We've got all those dust clouds out there. We've got to get one to collapse. If we want to form a star, you can have this giant dust cloud that's, you know, tens of light years across. You've got plenty of material in it to form a star, but you've got to get it to collapse. Otherwise, it's just going to sit there. It doesn't want to collapse on its own. There's no reason for it to collapse, right? It's just sitting there. Why, does it, why do all the particles want to go together? You've got to get some kind of core. You have to start something collapsing, get some kind of core at the center, that will gravitationally begin to attract these other materials. Supernova explosion. supernova explosion would be a very good one. Yeah? Could you have like a, a rogue planet, like a hot Jupiter or something like that, come into a, a nebula? And I think hot Jupiter would be a, be a rock state when that planet would be technically really cold. Mm, depends on when it formed. It could have some, it still could have some heat left over from its formation. Mean, Jupiter would still have some heat even if not for being around the sun. But anyways, but I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. If one came into a nebula or something like that, could it have enough mass to? Probably would not be enough mass to do that. You'd need more mass than that. You'd need something like supernova explosion would be a good one. That that shock wave coming out just compresses the material and pushes it down. The planet would probably just pass through and probably not even be noticed, honestly. Um, so the other thing that you can do is you can collide a couple of gas clouds together. If you've got gas clouds colliding together, they smash into each other, well, they'll compress each other. Um, the stars never collide, or essentially never, for as far as we're concerned. Star two stars won't collide. Um, if you pass them, pass, uh, even pass two galaxies through each other, the stars will just go right by each other because they're so tiny. They're so teeny tiny compared to how far away they are. So if you think about it, you know, stars are the size of the sun, boy, that's gigantic. But compared to the distances between the sun and the nearest star, let's see, the sun was a basketball here, right? Something like that. And the next basketball, the nearest star, was off in the Middle East. So if you're doing colliding those things together, are you ever going to hit those two basketballs together? Yeah? All right, I understand that they need, uh, the cloud needs some kind of shock. Something. Yep. There were some, uh, an astronaut who was in space and he had a bag 
Mm -hmm. Ziploc bag, it was full of sugar or something. Okay. And he held it up and it was like an experiment to see how things coalesce mm -hmm. together. So they were all just grains, but then they started to come together and like form bigger particles. Hmm. So if you have a big cloud like that, why wouldn't everything just naturally kind of come together? Because the distances between them are so much larger. You know, instead of having this, the, instead of having all those grains together in a bag, you got one grain here and one grain here, and when they're that far away, you need something to shock and push them together to start to start the process. And it may build by something like that. So you're saying that one particle could be here and another one could be five thousand kilometers away. Now, probably not that far, but you know, talking meters away even, or even centimeters away. I mean, centimeters away for two particles is a lot. I mean, that's a that's a big distance away from them. And some of these you're talking about, you know, a certain number of particles per meter. I mean, it's nothing like the number of particles you have here, which is beyond our imagination. You know, how many uh, billions upon billions and billions of particles are in each cubic centimeter of the atmosphere? You know, you don't want to count them all, right? You're not going to count. You could count your whole life. You'll never get there. But, yeah, there could be, could be something going on. There's something. We, we need something. We need something to actually begin to get that to collapse some sort of force, something to get gravity to kick in. Once you start getting those centers, you get some material started, then they'll start to collapse under its own, own, own weight. So eventually you will form. So the first part is getting that thing to collapse. What is going on? We think that for our solar system it was a supernova explosion nearby. That a supernova went, a supernova went out and that caused the cloud that contained the sun to eventually start collapsing and forming the solar system. As to why we think that is, yeah. uh, some of the elements that we find in meteorites, there are some traces or remnants of elements that can only be formed in a supernova explosion. Certain isotopes, especially of aluminum, there's some that can only be formed, could only have been formed in a supernova explosion because they have very short half-lives. They don't live very long. So if they'd just been sitting out there in the universe, they'd have all been gone. So they must have formed right around, it must have gone off right around the time the solar system formed because they found the remnants of them, their material left over, in, in meteorites. So in order for them to have formed, it had to have been a supernova explosion. Could there be other things that form other stars? Certainly there could be, but that's the current thought as to what, what our solar system formed. Okay. So. Here's what normally happens. If we just look at a few atoms, let's look at five of the many billions upon billions upon billions of atoms that we look at in a gas cloud. Each of those atoms has its own motion. So they're just zipping around this gas cloud and here's number one is going this direction and two is going that way, three, four, five. They're all going in some direction. And if you pick out five of them that happen to be going in the right directions, they're all coming close together. So now you've got one, two, three, you've got a little clump. Is that clump going to last? Probably not. That clump won't last because you've only got five small particles and this one got here, but it's still moving. It didn't just get here and stop, right? Newton's first law, an object in motion, remains in motion. So unless there's some reason for it to stop, it's just here and it's going to head off this direction. So a little while later, it's heading off this way and they're spreading apart. You need something, you need enough gravitational force, you know, the gravitational force between a proton and a proton, it's almost zero. No matter how close you get, unless you get, how many close you get them together, the gravitational force is essentially zero. You need big clumps. 
you know, things that have masses pushing the mass of the sun. You need to be able to get that much material put in a relatively small area in order to overcome the random motions. All these random motions will just continue. So these particles will go this way, they'll come close together, but they're all still moving there. This one's moving that way, that one's moving that way, and seconds later, now they're spreading apart again. So you have to get big clumps of material together in order to overwhelm this thermal motion. Eventually, you'll push them all. Eventually, if you have it collapsing, you'll be able to put them all together. So gravitational force is the dominant force, right? If anybody asks you about a force, that's usually the one that comes up, right? We all know about gravity. It's the weakest of the four major forces. There are four forces in nature, four major ones. And that's the far, by far the weakest one. You know, electromagnetic force, a lot stronger than gravity. The strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force, still a lot stronger than gravity. It's the weakest, but it works over very large distances. And it doesn't get canceled out. Now, there's no way to cancel out gravity. You can cancel out the electromagnetic force if you don't have any charges. So here's an example. Here's the first seven stages of stellar evolution. Um, what we have is, again, stages one through seven. You have a time, you have a temperatures that are occurring. This is a central temperature of that core. You note when it starts that there's really no difference. It's just that gas cloud. It's pretty much uniform. Might be 10 degrees at the core, it's 10 degrees at the surface. Density might be small, about a billion particles per cubic meter. Right? So one of these into a big cube. About a billion particles in each of those. That's relatively small. So I mean you're still talking very small distances away, but very large compared to the size of those particles. And that's what we call an interstellar cloud. It's an interstellar cloud. That would be the first stage. The time frames here are one thing to really look at. This is what I sort of talked about and alluded to earlier. How long does it take to go from stage one to stage two? About two million years. To go from a cloud to a cloud fragment, just having that cloud out there to having it start to collapse and start to break into pieces, takes a couple million years. When you get down here, you've got hundreds of uh, tens of thousands of years, 30,000 years, to start to begin to form that protostar. Not quite a star yet. And then you take another 100,000 or a million years to actually get something that forms a protostar. It's not a star yet. A star requires nuclear fusion going on at the core. So you've got to get those temperatures up to 10 million degrees. And if you note those central temperatures, even though they're getting pretty hot, 10, 100, 10,000, a million, even up to 5 million, it's getting pretty warm down at the center of that star but not, not hot enough yet to fuse hydrogen into helium. And that's our definition of what it means to be a star. It has a high enough temperature at its core to be able to be fusing hydrogen into helium. So this star as it's forming, this would be a star much like the sun. Here after you know, tens of millions of years, takes a little while. I kept saying, I gave you shorter time scales. I kept saying like hundreds of thousands of years before. I'm talking about very big stars. They'd form a lot quicker than this. The sun might take, you know, 30 or 40 million years, a star like the sun might take 30 or 40 million years to actually form until it gets to the point where it reaches that critical number, about 10 million degrees, and it is now able to fuse hydrogen into helium in its core. So at stage six, it becomes a star. It's got one more step to go. Seven is that big boring one. That's where the sun is right now. It's a main sequence star, and it's not doing much of anything. 
It's giving us lots of energy, keeping us warm, keeping us lit. But in terms of what's actually happening, 10 billion years, how long did all this take? Well, let's see, that one was 30, 30 million years, another, 10, another million years, another 10 million years, so 40 million years. Eh, the rest of that's kind of small, 40-some million years for the sun to form. Once it forms, it stays in that state for 10 billion years. 40 million years, boy, it's a lot. Compared to 10 billion years, it's nothing. You know, how many, four, how many 40 million years are there in 10 billion years? Quite a few. It's still proto. It's still proto star. It's just the as the star is collapsing and the temperature is beginning to heat up. At some point in here, there are some nuclear reactions that can begin at a lower temperature, and it's probably one of those. Um, deuterium, for example, will burn at a much lower temperature than hydrogen. It's much easier to fuse, so it may be a kick in that where it's starting to get some other energy source that it's actually able to produce some energy, but it's not be able to do the proton-proton chain that we looked at when we looked at the sun. Okay. So temperature is increasing both on the exterior and in the interior. Started out the same. Now it, by the end it reaches 15 million degrees and 6,000 degrees on the surface. The density has gone up from something Tiny, and I know a billion particles per cubic meter sounds large because you talk about a billion anything, it sounds large to us. But it goes from a billion to a trillion, and it's going to go up here to about 10 to the 32nd particles. So you can take that billion and multiply it by a billion, and then multiply it by a multiply, not add, multiply it by a billion again. So a billion times a billion times a billion, you still haven't gotten up there. So for every billion, every particle you had in this first cubic meter, for each one of those particles, you add a billion. Then for each one of those, you add another billion. And you still haven't quite gotten up to this density. That would get you up to about 10 to the 27th about in here. You've still got to go even further to get that many particles. So you're actually getting lots and lots of particles, very high density, where these nuclear reactions can occur. Even if you got to a high temperature with such a low density over here, like the corona of the sun, it's very hot, millions of, millions of degrees, it still couldn't have nuclear reactions because the particles are so diffuse, they're so spread out. You need those very high densities. So you see that the temperature will increase, the density will increase, and the diameter, the other thing, will decrease. The size will get smaller and smaller. It starts out as a cloud light years across. It'll end up as a star about the diameter of the sun, about the size of the sun as it goes through its life. Now I'm going to, we're going to look at all those stages in a little bit more detail as we go through. That's just a table from your book kind of giving a little summary there. Same no, stages would be essentially the same. Each stage is something specific going on with the star. The stages, the times would be quite different. And the temperatures, everything else would change depending on a more massive star. So a more massive star would do that a lot faster. Instead of taking millions of years, it might take tens of thousands or hundred thousand years to, to go from one stage to another. So let's look, start looking at the first stage or so here in the last minute or two. Uh, stage one, the interstellar cloud starts to contract, again, due to something. So something causes it to uh, start collapsing. As it collapses, you don't get one giant cloud just collapsing down to a single star. So that star had, you know, thousand solar masses. It doesn't just collapse down and form one gigantic star. It tends to break apart as it's forming. So it tends to break off into littler clumps. 
So you have one giant cloud there, fragmenting into several clumps, each of those then fragments. You still have several solar mass, several masses. You can form several stars out of each of these little clumps as they break into smaller pieces. So the cloud will, break, the cloud will begin to break apart and fragment. You couldn't form a star that big if you tried to take all that material and form a star. It wouldn't happen. You can't begin to form a star that is, you know, thousand times the mass of the sun. It, becomes unsta- it would become unstable and it would uh, blow too much material away from it as it started to form. So it would never form anything that big. But it will fragment as they start to form. As you start to form clumps, they'll fragment into different, different clumps here. Now let me see, what is... Uh, let's go ahead, let's just stop there. We'll just do stage one and then I'll come and do the rest of the stages on Wednesday and we'll finish up, probably finish up most of this chapter on Wednesday. So, question, questions? Again, if you want to check your lab grades, are all up there for all the labs that have been done. And I'll have the homeworks, uh, about halfway through the homeworks, I should have those done later today. And then I'll be able to start working on the articles for you and get, the, get those up and graded. So, have a good day.